Hello everyone and welcome to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond the solar system to explore extra amazing extrasolar planets. You're in for a treat this month as we've spoiled you with an exciting lineup for this, our 40th show. Uh, I'm going to chat a little about the labels and the nomenclature that we apply to some of the planets that don't fit so neatly into our solar system inspired categories. Hugh is joined by our special guest this month, Dr. Brett Morris from the University of Bern. And last but not at all least, Hannah will be reporting from the Exocast news desk on the month's Exoplanet news, so do stay tuned for that. But before we get started, let's introduce the gang. Uh, I'm Andrew Rushby. I'm a postdoctoral astrobiologist at the University of California, Irvine, where I study small planets around small stars. I'm Hugh Osborne, and I'm the Chaos Test or Chess Fellow at the University of Bern and soon to be at MIT as well. And I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I'm a postdoc at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, where I study the atmospheres of exoplanets. So it sounds like it's been an exciting month, at least for Hugh, who's uh, kind of in the in the midst of a move. How, how, how's it going, Hugh? Yeah, pretty good. I mean, uh, so I moved a couple of weeks ago now. Um, I'm only here for two months in Bern, so at least I didn't have to move all my worldly possessions. Uh, <laughs> so I could do the do the move relatively simply. Oh, but, come uh, Hugh, as postdocs, we don't have that many worldly possessions, let's be honest. <laughs> I don't know, no, it builds true, up yeah. over time. Yes, because Hannah, of course, you're in the midst midst of a move as well, right? Yeah, it's a little bit, there's two of us, so it's a little bit more complicated. There's a lot more stuff and a lot of furniture to get rid of when, because he's also going to be moving across the pond soon. It's just the the furniture that you require to live, you no longer can take with you. So getting rid of that has been and is currently a bit of a nightmare. But Do postdocs even buy or rent unfurnished flats? I've never had to do that. Oh, really? (laughs) No, I've always had to do yeah. that. I've never rented somewhere furnished. It's been ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, similarly, uh, another postdoc was leaving just as I arrived. So it worked quite well here in that I just inherited all of their stuff, basically. Uh, I bought it off them, but, you know, it was like a, it was like the postdoc passing of the baton. I took his office right. and I took most of his furniture. <laughs> so it worked out all right. Yeah, we managed to sell the car, but, you know, getting some of the car to somebody at work was like perfect situation. But other than that, everything's just... It seems like every department, there's like a, a, a flat that's been handed down through the generations occupied by postdocs. <laughs> uh, it certainly is it's apparently the case here as well. Yeah, because yeah, uh, our guest, Brett, you moved straight into Daniel Angerhausen's uh, apartment, right? When you first moved? I did. That was a very convenient move. <laughs> ah, f- former guest, of course, on Exocast as yeah. well. So. <laughs> a little Exocast legacy there too. Right. It's all, it's a very small world, uh, in academia and very specifically in exoplanets. I think that there's a, there's a lot of, of moving around and everybody knows everybody. So. True. So as we've kind of half introduced our guest, I'm going to throw it over here for a bit more of a formal introduction and we can have a chat. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, this month I had the pleasure of introducing my new colleague here in Bern, as you heard, uh, Dr. Brett Morris. So welcome. Thank you. Brett did a master's and then a PhD in astronomy and astrobiology in UW in uh, Seattle before moving here to Switzerland uh, only a few months ago now um, to start a postdoc fellowship here uh, at the University of Bern. Um, And his research is mostly on understanding extrasolar star spots and how they affect our understanding of exoplanets, um, as well as an array of other things, I believe. But uh, yeah, welcome to the show, Brett. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. 
Um, so is that an accurate description of what, of what your kind of research goals are? Yeah, I think that's an overview that's pretty good. I like to study not only planets, but the stars that they orbit. And I use the planets to study the stars, and I use the stars to study the planets. Sure. So, so just bringing that back a bit, what is the sort of stellar activity that, that we talk about when we do exoplanet science? Yeah, so when we're looking at an exoplanet, typically a transiting exoplanet is the work that I do. Uh, these transiting exoplanets are detected by noting the change in brightness of the star as the planet passes in front of the star. And the star is not a uniform light source. It has a varying surface brightness with space and with time, which leads to signals that get injected into our photometry of exoplanet transits and to our spectroscopy of exoplanet transits, which influences our measurements of what the atmospheres of those planets are made of. It influences the radii that we measure of the planets, and it can make it difficult to detect planets at all. Right, sure. And so uh, I study some of the more tame stars, which have fewer spots, which allow us to study some stellar astrophysics in addition to studying the exoplanet science. Okay. So these are star spots like those we see on our sun. Is that right? On occasion. Um, yeah. They, they range from stars that are a hundred times more spotted than the sun to stars that are as spotted as the sun or less. Um, the thing that I'm really struggling with the most right now is I'm trying to uh, work on techniques for detecting star spot coverages like those of the sun using exoplanets and uh, having a difficult time because the sun doesn't actually have that many spots. Right, yeah. So if you were to study the solar system from a great distance and look back at the planets of the solar system, uh, their transits would very rarely be affected by star spots. Sure. And so it's actually really tricky to wade into the realm of studying sun-like stars because they have so few spots that they're hard to find. So yeah, I was going to ask that because obviously we had a transit in the solar system only yesterday. Um, if you were looking at the transit of Mercury, would would there be effects from the activity, you know, the spots and the other stuff on the star that, that would make it more difficult to study? That's a really fun question. The short answer is there's no features on the sun right now. <laughs> um, and so the observations that you could have taken of Mercury passing in front of the sun would have just revealed a really nice, clean transit. Oh, right. Of course, there are extra signals in there. There's granulation happening yeah, on the Yeah, I was going to say, a stellar physicist would have a lot of problems saying there's no, yes. no nothing happening on the sun. And yeah. representing the stellar astrophysics community a little bit on this podcast today, I will say that there are other things going on, but you wouldn't be able to detect sunspots if you were detecting Mercury's transit. Right. Uh, which is kind of par for the course. If you were to observe the sun on any random transit, you'd be very unlikely to pass over or near a star spot right, that would okay. affect your observation. So right. it's really star spots are the problem. There's uh, the granulation and faculty aren't so problematic. Why is that? That has to do with the band passes that we typically observe over. And so um, astronomers don't always observe over all wavelengths at once. We observe over filters that cover part of the optical or part of the infrared spectrum. And the parts of the spectrum that we're used to looking at in typically the red optical uh, are dominated more by the effects of star spots than by faculi, okay. for example. So a faculi is like an anti-star spot, right? Just a... Yes, it's a bright region that's spread out over the surface of the star, a uh, little less concentrated than a star spot usually is. Okay. Did you have a question, Hannah? I don't know. Well, I was just going to say one of the 
one of the things that if you look at Mercury's transit, it's tiny. There are sunspots which are bigger than that change in brightness. So the only thing that you'd really have to gauge whether or not it was a planet versus one of the sunspots is knowing the rotation period of our star, which is incredibly slow. So that would be a very, very long transit if you saw a star spot that was the equivalent brightness difference as Mercury. Because Mercury, if you look at some of the pictures, I was looking on Twitter and I was looking at some of the feeds, some of the pictures were blurry enough that you could only tell where Mercury was if you kept moving it around and moved it around your screen so you could see where the, the kind of marks on your screen were compared to where the mark of this <laughs> dark little Mercury spot was. I was like, hang on a second. Oh, there it is. Uh, it it's a very, very small change in brightness for Mercury. So star spots can be a huge issue. We're just at a very, very low minima for activity of the sun right now. Yeah. So, so what's um, so if the sun's not a problem, what stars is this a problem for? What, where's the? Well, so someone is going to steal my thunder a little bit when I tell this story. But uh, a previous guest on your show, Michael Gully Santiago, yeah. Uh, chose as his planet, uh, the planet that made up the majority of my PhD thesis, which was Hat P11b. Hat P11b is a really fun system to talk about because it is a Neptune-sized planet that's orbiting a star 80% the mass of the sun. And it orbits this star in a polar orbit. So it goes from the south pole to the north pole across the star. And during every transit, it passes over typically two star spots, for each transit that was observed in the Kepler light curves. And that allows us to reveal the fact that the star probably has 100 times more spot coverage than the sun does, because we can actually count how often the planet was in front of spots and how often the planet was in front of the normal parts of the star, and then try to do a statistical weighting and account for how much coverage there is on the surface of the star. And so that one... I think is one of the Rosetta stones for understanding star spots on other uh, exoplanet hosts, because we can really calibrate all of the other techniques that we use to measure the presence of star spots off of this one system. Sure. So do the star spots cover the star or are they in a certain area? Or? The star spots fall into two active latitudes, much as they do on the okay. sun. So... Uh, as the planet is passing over the star, it crosses over the southern latitude and then the northern active latitude, one after the other. And so most transits have these two bumps in them that are separated by an even interval, uh, which represents the separation between the active latitudes on the star. Right. And the, and the planet is in a polar orbit, I guess, because it's yes. not moving like it would in a transit in the solar system along the, the direction of the spots. Right. right. So normally when we picture a transit, or if you looked at the transit of Mercury, you would see Mercury move from the left to the right across the sun. And this would be a planet that goes from the bottom to the top. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's kind of a shame that it got kicked out of the Exo Cup. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I agree. I cast my vote, but it was only one vote. So what happens if we don't see, so you, you talk there about a planet which crosses these star spots and you see bumps effectively in the light curve. What happens if we don't see these crossings? Is, is there still effects that stellar activity can have on, on our knowledge of these planets? There are. So if a planet is crossing over a star that has spots that don't get crossed over by the planet, you can still have changes in the apparent depth of the exoplanet transit, right. which has to do with the fact that there's some missing light already on the surface of the star as a result of the spot. 
And so when the planet crosses in front, its differential change is different than it would be if there were no spots. And so as a result, both as a function of time and as a function of color, uh, transit depths of unocculted spots in exoplanet transits uh, can bias what you see in a transit spectrum, for instance. Right, okay. And in a transit spectrum as a function of time. And so this is a really nasty problem for those of us who would like to measure what planets are made of, because in the process of trying to measure exoplanet compositions, when we measure the spectrum of the exoplanet, uh, the effect of the spots can often mimic or obscure atmospheric properties of the planet. Uh, and there was a really great paper that was just published uh, on HAP-P11 and the effect of the star spots on the transmission spectrum. I'm forgetting the name of the first author, and I'm Rackham. terribly sorry for that. No. Has it been Rackham? No, no, no. no, no. It was uh, Yayati Chat uh, from Caltech. Yes. I'm going to be talking about it in the news a bit later. But yeah, that was okay, a great. really Perfect. detailed study of how the spots can be mapped and used to try and understand what was happening in the transmission spectrum and, and actually pull out some information from that. Actually, I, I don't actually have any of that information in the news, so thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, of course. It was a fantastic paper. Um, so it sounds like stellar activity is usually bad, right? Is that Stellar activity is amoral. It, it doesn't <laughs> okay. know that it's causing problems for us, and it's probably a universal phenomenon, and I don't think stars are bad. Uh, but I think they pose a threat to our ability to characterize their planets as well as we would like to. Right. And so um, I think there are something that some people like me are making a career out of uh, studying because they are threatening. <laughs> um, but intrinsically, I think they're actually really interesting. Stellar astrophysics is this really rich field. Um, there's a quote attributed to Babcock that I really like that if it weren't for magnetic fields, most stars would be as boring as astronomers assume them to be. <laughs> um, but there are magnetic fields on the surfaces of stars that are causing these brightness variations in a function of time and wavelength, which are important perturbations on the normal standard candle image that we have of stars in the background as planets go around them. I'm, I'm kind of excited to hear about Brett's astrobiology stuff. Yeah, well, let's let's go there now. So, so moving com tack completely, you you mentioned to me that well, you you specified it wasn't just an astrophysics PhD; it was ast astrobiology as well. So, do you want to talk about what astrobiology you've been up to? Sure. So, the PhD program at the University of Washington is a dual title PhD program, or the the track that I chose. And if anybody out there is interested in pursuing a career in astrobiology, I think the University of Washington is a really great place to go get your PhD uh, because it's one of only a few programs out there which allows you to study astrobiology while you're studying astrophysics. And so in my program, I took all of the normal classes that you needed to take as an astrophysicist. So MHD and radiative transfer and all of those things. But then I also took courses in broad overarching topics related to the search for life in the universe and the conditions necessary for life, which is astrobiology. And that included things like microbiology and oceanography and geology and 
biochemistry and the fields that need to learn how to talk to one another if we are to ever answer the question if there's life out there in the universe and trying to give the students in the program the best opportunity to speak the vocabulary of each of those sciences so that you can bring your whole self to the question of where life is and where life might arise next. And so the PhD program was a super cool opportunity to take classes in things that astronomers normally don't take classes in, but also to do a little bit of field work in a field that's not your own. And so there was a research rotation requirement, which I think was the coolest part of the program, which required that you do something that is not part of your home department. Mm -hmm. And so for me, as you know, uh, that meant working with oceanographers um, on a project related to astrobiology. And I think this is the coolest thing in the world. So if I tell you too much about this, pull me back because <laughs> no, this is like the coolest project. It involves a microscope. And I know I'm talking to people who care about telescopes, but let me try to motivate why a <laughs> telescope and a microscope are similar and equally interesting. There are these icy moons in the outer solar system. I've seen that some moons in the solar system have even been adopted on your uh, program as planets. Got tight on that list, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to start debating that. Um, <laughs> but I do think of icy moons as worlds, right? Yep. They are places where life could be. And we have a lot of techniques that we can bring to the table when it comes to detecting the biosignatures of extant life on those worlds. And so if we were to send a probe to Enceladus or send a probe to Europa, which are the moons of Saturn and Jupiter respectively, then we might be able to measure using a gas chromatograph and a mass spectrometer what the materials are on the surface and if those materials are organic compounds like those you find in living organisms. But they don't detect living stuff. How do you detect something that's actually alive in your sample? That's been a really thorny problem. Uh, they attempted to get around this problem with the Viking landers on Mars. Yeah. They took a little cup that was filled with nutrients and they added some Martian soil to it and then measured what gases came off. And of course, some gases came off and then everybody argued over what those <laughs> gases meant. And, nobody, and still are, right? Because nobody was, really knows what it means. This is being rehashed this month, I've seen That's in right. the press. Yes, yeah. it's back in the news. Um, and so there are plenty of unreliable ways to try to measure the presence of something living in your sample. But something that the lab that I worked in is testing out as a hypothesis is that motility is a universal biosignature. Motility mm. is motion. It is the property of living organisms to move through their environment. And we think that that's something that's probably part of convergent evolution. No matter what kind of life you have or where the life arose, you have good reason to swim towards nutrients or towards heat or towards light or away from toxins or away from predators. And so we're testing the hypothesis, things probably swim. And the way that we're doing that is with a microscope. This is a microscope that will actually send two worlds like Enceladus and Europa. Yeah. And you would take a liquid sample of the water from that environment and you would observe it with this microscope. This microscope is a very tricked out microscope. It's called a digital holographic microscope. 
And just to make things even more complicated, if you've ever heard of a Michelson interferometer, this device, this microscope, is essentially a Michelson interferometer. You have these two arms of light that are bouncing off of mirrors on either side. And what you do is you put your sample, your microscope sample, in one of the arms. The interference fringe pattern that comes out of your Michelson interferometer is now all screwed up because there's this sample going through the light in one of the paths. But numerically, you can reconstruct the composition of your sample numerically from the fringe pattern. And so what we do is we digitally record an image of the interference fringes. And then I do a whole bunch of magical math that turns the interference fringes into a 3D rendering of what was in the sample. And the 3D part is really important because if you were looking at a flat microscope slide of swimming organisms, if they were swimming towards or away from you, you wouldn't really notice. Right, yeah. Or they'd swim into and out of focus. And one of the advantages of a holographic microscope is that it simultaneously images the full 3D volume of your sample. Mm. And we can do that at many frames a second and then look for swimming in three dimensions through the sample. And so the the goal of this project is to create not only the hardware, but the software that can take these images of swimming motile bacteria or archaea or whatever living things, and then differentiate that motion from Brownian motion or just the random flow of stuff in a liquid. Yeah. Wow. That that's kind of leads to the question I have. How do you tell the difference between uh, something swimming and turbulence in your sample? That's really hard to do. And one of the things that we're testing out on this project is whether or not you can set up gradients that a living thing can respond to. And so in the sample chamber, we have a flowing medium and the flowing medium is coming from two channels. One channel has, for example, nutrients or toxins in it. And the other one has the living organism. And that way you can see if things are swimming down the gradient towards where you expect them to go. Does that not require you to have a guess or understanding of what the life is to know what would be a toxin and what would be a nutrient for it? It does. And right now, for the sake of proving that the experiment is feasible, um, we're using real bacteria. And so it's easy to guess what their favorite and least favorite foods are. But when it comes to real life out there, uh, we're going to have to use more creative mechanisms. And so one of the things that we really like to think about is heat and light. Heat allows chemical reactions to happen faster. And so life will probably like heat to some extent. There's too much of a good thing there. <laughs> and with light, uh, we know that photosynthesis is the basis of much of the life on the earth. And so uh, we think swimming towards light or away from light might be, if not universal, at least a common property of life out there. And so we want to test to see if we create a little bacterial torture chamber and we put light on one side and heat on another and nutrients on another, and we can see where things move. If they move towards or away from one of those axes, then they might be responding to the the chamber that we've set up for them. 
So that sounds fascinating, Brett, and kind of moving, uh, kind of building on from what Hannah said, like thinking less about the turbulence, but about potential precursor molecules, for example, that could still imitate the way that 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 life moves in terms of its motility. I remember years ago now hearing a really interesting talk about certain oil molecules. I can't even remember what type of oil it was, but that it can, in certain gradients, still mimic life. It's still very abiotic. And, you know, this was made as an argument for like pre, pre-life motility, but it could still kind of mimic that movement. Is there any way at this stage, I guess there's a lot of machine learning, for example, that might go into determining how life moves that isn't how precursor or abiotic molecules might move as well. Yeah. So one way to answer both of your questions is with some of the experiments that we've dreamt up that can help us distinguish between living stuff and dead stuff moving. One idea is that you just inject beads into the sample, micron-sized beads that you know are dead, and then you can watch them flow and look for things that are moving counter to that flow. That's a pretty simple experiment, but because of the reason that you just mentioned, um, there can be chemical gradients in the sample as a result of that, which could create activity that looks like life. Perhaps my favorite way of solving this problem of both of your problems is that one of the only working definitions of whether or not something is alive is that you can kill it. And so we could take a sample which appears to have something alive in it. And then we could very intentionally kill it. We could either bake it at a very high temperature. We could bake it with radiation. We could do something really terrible to that sample and then see if it stops swimming. Mm. I could see the headline now. Dr. Brett Morris finds life on Enceladus, kills it immediately. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, what's the planetary protection angle on that? That comes another question, right? So once you've collected that sample, do you is it is it catch and release? Or is it catch and then send it for a mass spectrometer after you've ground it up? Like... Uh, because you want more information from that one sample than just this this 3D microscope. You'll want to know what the chemical composition of a lot of it is. So is there... Absolutely. Right. These these poor organisms will be giving their lives to science. <laughs> um, and the, the dream is that you would take whatever sample you've concentrated and you've studied, uh, and you would then feed it off to a variety of other things like gas chromatographs and mass spectrometers, which would then tell you that that was actually made of organic materials or or what it was made of. Um, but unfortunately, there's no way for these things to get out alive. So is it likely, Brett, that we'll be seeing this instrument flying on a lander soon? I don't want to make any promises. <laughs> I think uh, it would be wise of those planning missions to take a look at some of the more mature instruments that have been developed that can do this type of work because they are getting more and more mature every day and the work they're producing is super exciting i mean yeah i mean very diplomatic answer (laughs) (laughs) it almost sounds like i mean if i if i had picked if i was 13 and someone had to ask me how to find life I'd have just done a biology class, you know, looking at a slide with pond water in, and that's what probably what I'd say, right? So, I can see why it's uh, it's it's a unique and, and good way of, of of finding, you know, microorganisms. Yeah. From from dead life to dead stars, let's talk about um, white dwarfs because I believe you had a project looking for 
planets and other material around white dwarfs. So I do. Uh, so I guess for your listeners, we should do a little bit of background because white dwarfs are not normally part of the planet conversation. No. Uh, white dwarf is the end point of stellar evolution for 95% of stars. So think about that for a moment. If most stars produce planets, which is kind of the trend that we're headed towards in, in planet demographic discovery, and most stars become white dwarfs, we can ask the question, what happens to most planets once their star becomes a white dwarf? And the short answer is we don't know the answer to that question yet, but we're trying very hard to find out the answer. The way that we're looking is using two techniques. One is the transit method. We're looking for material passing in front of the white dwarfs. But there's also a second technique, which I think is really unique, which we don't often get to talk about in exoplanet science, but is sort of intruding into the conversation, which is that these white dwarfs often have atmospheres that are polluted by heavy elements, which is peculiar. A white dwarf is a really compact object, and so it's kind of like salad dressing. The light material floats to the top and the heavy stuff floats to the bottom on an elemental scale. And so when you look at a atmosphere of a white dwarf, you expect to see hydrogen and helium. But if you see anything heavier than that, that material probably recently fell onto the white dwarf. And it turns out that when you look at white dwarfs, more than 30% of them have some heavier material on their surfaces, which indicates that most white dwarfs are lunching on their own exoplanets most of the time. Uh, one of the other things that's really neat about this is that the salad dressing separation timescale is actually pretty short. And so if you catch a white dwarf that has material that's heavier than hydrogen and helium in its atmosphere, you probably caught a recent planetary accretion event. And so if we look throughout the sky and... 30 to 50% of white dwarfs happen to have this uh, pollution on their surfaces, that's a large fraction of planets that are getting fed onto their host stars uh, all the time. And so that makes people like me very hopeful that in the near future, we are going to discover more transiting objects orbiting these white dwarfs, because there must be essentially a conveyor belt of material getting moved in close to the star that then falls onto the star, which is waiting to be discovered. And so I've been working over the last four years with a group of undergraduates at the University of Washington who have been studying white dwarfs um, intrepidly and with much enthusiasm and excitement, despite not finding anything for a very long time, <laughs> uh, looking to find material passing in front of these white dwarfs. And the, the motivation for it is not just that they're zombie planets, which is true and that's cool, but there's, there's two motivations. One is that the planet can be very small and we would detect it. And the reason for that is that a white dwarf is about the size of the Earth. And so a moon-sized object passing in front of that white dwarf would have a transit depth of tens of percent. It would be a very large change in brightness. And so small objects cause really big changes in brightness. And so we can really discover minor planet-sized objects. And the other is that once you identify a transiting object orbiting a white dwarf, if that white dwarf is also metal-polluted, 
you could essentially x-ray the interior of the transiting exoplanet because its siblings will be smeared out across the surface of the host star. And then you can infer what the chemical composition of the rocky body that you've detected is made of based on its sibling. And so it's really the only shot we have for measuring the bulk composition of a planet directly by measuring its siblings bulk composition uh, if we discover a transiting object around a white dwarf. And so that's what we're looking for. And I recently was awarded a GEO program on ESA's CAPS mission, which is going to be characterizing exoplanets that are known. Uh, but there's a little bit of time that's been saved for hunting for objects that are not yet known. And we're going to invest some of that time into studying white dwarfs and looking to see if there's any material orbiting them with this real precision photometry from the space-based observatory. I guess there's an assumption there that the siblings of these objects look the same, right? That they have the same bulk composition. But, right. Or that they've not been stripped off in terms of, you know, you might have the core left and the silicate that's been shoved in the star or something like this. Um, but yeah, it's that wasn't a question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is this assumption. When you actually look at the metal pollution on white dwarfs, you find a diverse range of material that's been accreted. Uh, there's some evidence that the material that's been accreted is water rich for some white dwarfs, yeah. which is super exciting. And the evidence for that shows up as an oxygen excess that if you were to pair every iron and magnesium with the appropriate amount of oxygen, do all of your stoichiometry, there's leftover oxygen in the atmosphere of the white dwarf. And they attribute that to water. And that doesn't mean that it came from oceans or from a ocean world, but it could. It could yeah. also mean that there's cometary material falling onto the white dwarf, which might be less surprising than a, an ocean-rich planet. Um, so there's there's hope that the material that gets accreted can be characterized beyond just the cursory, oh, that was a rocky planet. We might be able to go a little bit further and say that was a rocky planet that maybe had an iron core or that was a rocky planet that maybe had a lot of oceans. So, Brett, do we have any um, any idea about the time scale of the pollution event itself? Like how long could we see that signal for after the planet has been smeared across the surface, basically? I believe, and you can edit this out if I'm wrong and fact check me later, <laughs> I believe that the timescale for material to settle within the white dwarf is on the order of hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, so. so astronomically, that's a short timescale. Uh, practically, it's not. <laughs> so one of, one of the, you talked about Chaos there, and one of Chaos's you know, lead scientist is, is Didier Coulot, and you told me, a great story about how um, you happened to be in the room when he heard his, the news that he was winning the Nobel. So I wonder if could you could you tell us a bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to share that story. Um, I feel like I'm stealing glory a little bit by telling the story. <laughs> He's for got him. enough glory. Come you've on. you've got to get him on the pod, and then you you. <laughs> Have put a request in, story. He's probably got a. He's probably got quite a few press appearances under his belt now. <laughs> so in the meantime, I'll stand in for Didier. Um, we were holding a meeting for the Speculus Consortium, which is a consortium looking for planets orbiting late M dwarfs, and there were ten of us meeting at Cambridge. 
and we were really in the weeds, uh, just in the middle of a meeting at 10 a.m., talking about a very detailed problem that none of your listeners will care about, about what we should point our telescopes at, when Didier received a phone call at precisely 10 a.m. And he stood up and took the call and left the room. The room that we were in had glass walls, so we could see him on the other side of the door. And we could see him pace as he tried to figure out what was going on and why someone was calling him. And then we could see that someone asked him to sit down. So he sat down. And then at about the moment his butt hit the chair, someone in the room who was on Twitter said, Didier just won the Nobel Prize. So we found out probably within a second of Didier finding out. Didier was not called by the Nobel Committee because the Nobel Committee doesn't know your personal phone number and doesn't know how to contact you. He was contacted by the person at the University of Cambridge who knew his personal phone number, which was partly why he was so concerned and took the call when he received it, because he was like, why are you calling me on my personal number? (laughs) And they told him, uh, we're going to come by in 15 minutes. We're going to pick you up. We're going to take you to London and we're going to have a press conference and you're going to uh, be a new Nobel laureate and represent the field of exoplanet science to the world for history. Um, We'll be there in 15 minutes. And Didier was in shock. Didier didn't know how to process what was happening. We were applauding from the other room, but he didn't see anything at that point. He had tunnel vision. He was just lost in in confusion. We got to speak with him for about 15 minutes after, before they swept him away to go to his press conference. And he was not paying attention to the news. He kind of forgot that the Nobel Prize was being awarded that day. And he says he received no warning that it was coming. And he was convinced that the day was going to be a terrible day because he had a bike problem on his way to work that day. And so he arrived a sweaty mess and he was just all concerned. And he was like, I'll tell you the story later on today. That later on never came because he won the Nobel Prize. (laughs) And so right before they swept him away, we asked someone in the hallway to take the photo of our group before our group got split up. Uh, so that we'd have a picture of the meeting. And so Didier asked someone passing by in the hallway, could you please take our photo? And he said, oh, sure. And so we took the photo. And Didier, of course, is smiling brilliantly. And Didier thanks the man who took the photo. And as Didier is retrieving his phone, he says, do you know why we just took that photo? And (laughs) the man says, no, we're in the Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge. So this person's a physicist. And he says, I just won the Nobel Prize in physics. And... The guy really didn't know how to process what was just told to him. He said, oh, sure. And he walked away. And I wonder to this day if that man understands what happened in that interaction or thinks he was being fooled. I don't know that we'll ever know. He probably looked it up later, right? I'm sure he figured it out. I hope so. To be fair, I'd probably be in shock. You you just get blindsided by a statement like that. How do you... What's the appropriate response? I've got no precedent, so... (laughs) And it's something that people had been telling him for a long time to expect, but he personally seems to have stopped believing he was going to receive because there was a lot of rumors that it was going to happen like a decade ago. And 
So he thought the time might have passed, maybe it wasn't going to happen, and then it happened out of the blue. So you never know when you're going to win your Nobel Prize, folks. <laughs> Just have to keep waiting. Yes, got to be patient. That's a great story. Keep Thanks your phone on, on uh, early, early October every year, right? That's... <laughs> Oh, that's great to hear. Well, thanks, thanks for chatting with us, Brett. It's been um, really, really interesting to have you on. Of course, we'll hear from you later when you adopt a planet into our Hall of Fame, into our Exocast Adopted Planets list. But yeah, for now, thank you very much. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks, Brett. Now, Andrew's going to dive straight into the issue of excessive exoplanet nomenclature, from sub-Earths to super-Jupiters. So tell us a bit about that. Great. Thank you. That was a great introduction. Uh, the, the word nomenclature I'm, I'm having trouble with, so I'm going to try and avoid it. But this month, I would like to talk about uh, some of those in-between planets in terms of size that maybe are less familiar with the now more popular classes of planet that we that we often hear about and we often talk about on the show. So I hope you're ready to throw off the shackles of traditional prefix constraints and take a leisurely cruise past the sub-Earths, the mega-Earths, the sub-Neptunes, the hot Saturns, the super-Puffs, and super-Jupiters of the galactic neighbourhood. So these t- types of planets are kind of weird, and we don't have that many examples of them in some cases, but they can teach us a lot about how we think about planets and their formation, and maybe demonstrate that perhaps trying to classify objects that are very complicated and and, and range across a wide parameter space uh, is maybe less useful than it first might appear, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. So I think now we're becoming more familiar with the once more enigmatic class of planets uh, known as hot Jupiters. These are close-in gas giants around Jupiter's mass, the secrets of which our own very uh, our very own Dr. Wakeford earned her salary trying to uncover. Um, there's also the super-Earths, of course, those those rocky planets that are larger than the Earth, but smaller than our, our least massive gas giant, Neptune. And these are turning out to be more common than we, than we expected, um, even though we don't have one of those uh, type of worlds in our solar system. And I often lament the fact because it would be really cool to to be able to study. But what about the other in-between planets? You know, there's entire galaxies of worlds that are now regulate, uh, relegated to, you know, a sub or super something category just because they don't quite look like the planets that we have in our solar system. So I'd like to start with the with the little ones, and namely the sub-Earths. So as the name implies, these are planets that are substantially less massive than Earth. Uh, but the lower bound of exactly where that distribution is is somewhat nebulous. So um, as of the time of recording, the smallest object detected around another star, if we exclude the evidence of of exocomets around young A stars, is uh, actually a, dis- a disintegrating husk of a radiated rock known as WD1145 plus 17, uh, which is actually going to be featured somewhat later on the show as well, uh, as uh, as it's a favourite of our guest. So uh, this was considered a, a sub-Earth, or arguably a dwarf exoplanet, uh, as it's Um, less than the massive series in our asteroid belt, um, and also was the first, but not only now, planet-sized object detected around a white dwarf. However, we can look for less extreme examples of the sub-Earth categories, uh, and these can be found in the cozy Kepler-42 system, for example, which bizarrely has not one or even two, but three of these known sub-Earth exoplanets uh, spanning a wide range of installation in that system. So on the other end of the Earth-ish distribution of masses are the mega-Earths, or sub-Neptunes. So these are not super-Earths or mini-Neptunes, these are mega-Earths or sub-Neptunes. And I told you that you'd have to be prepared to be pretty free and easy with our prefixes here. So these are now rocks that are considered larger than super-Earths, super-super-Earths, if you will, occupying a regime at least 10 times more massive than than our planets compared to the 5 to 10 times for just you know, the one super-Earths, if you will. Now, the best-known example of this type of unusual planet is, or rather was, Kepler-10c, 
which was the larger sibling of the well-known Kepler 10b. Um, and this category was basically invented for this planet because when it was discovered, it was thought to be this very dense object with a mass comparable to that of Neptune, but a much smaller radius. Uh, however, it was revised in 2017 to just make it one boring old super-Earth, just like the rest. Um, however, uh, Espinosa et al. reported the discovery of K256b in 2016, which is an object with a mass around 16 Earth masses, but only 2.2 times its radius, with a very high density approaching 8 grams per cubic centimetre, which suggests suggested a complex three-layer composition, and according to the authors, uh, pointed to a planet that lies in the boundary between possibly rocky and non-rocky exoplanets. So I think this is pretty, you know, a difficult uh, category to, to think about. It's difficult to imagine a, a rocky planet much larger than a super-Earth, but apparently they're out there. So as we advance towards bigger planets, skipping out all of the uh, Earths and the, and the normal Neptune-sized planets on the way, we arrive at the super-Neptunes. So these are planets with radii between 5 and 7 times that of Earth, but with masses, masses between 20 and 80 times greater, making them obviously larger than Neptune in our, in our solar system. So we've not found many of these, and the flagship planet for these classes is probably Kepler-101b, discovered in 2014. And this has a radius five times that of Earth, but a mass around 50 times greater, with a very low density of about 1.4 something grams per cubic centimeter, much less than Neptune in our solar system. Of course, Isn't that we... just a Jupiter? Well, that is the argument, and it's kind of the case that I'm going to make further down here, is that we're, we're running into a number of these labels that arguably cross over other labels. And whether that's useful or not is something I want to ask you at the end of the segment. So... Uh, maybe maybe you change your opinion on your way, or maybe it'll just cement it. Um, and of course, we could also look to the ExoCup for another example of this pot potential Super Neptune or Mini Jupiter or Super Neptune or Mega Neptune, whatever you want to call it, uh, is Hat P11b, which we've already mentioned. Uh, unfortunately, it went out in a tough group, but it's uh, arguably a, one of these transitional gas giants. Now, again, we skip over a large swath of the mass distribution to land at the very high end of the spectrum. And we can consider the curious case of the hot Saturns, or the puffs, as they're sometimes known. Uh, these are low-density worlds that orbit very close to their stars, resulting in these scorched, very inflated atmospheres, uh, defining characteristic. Um, now, the, again, there are some hot Jupiters that could be on the border of these of these puffy worlds, depending on what their density is. Uh, but the most well-studied are maybe Hat One, uh, sorry, Hat P One B, Corot One B, Kepler Seven B, or Wasp Seventeen B. Um, now, of course, a cousin we call them of the these... super puffs. Well, I'm going to talk about the super puffs. We next. call them hot Jupiters. <laughs> some people call them hot Jupiters. Some people call them super puffs. But I think there's the super puffs generally refer to somewhat smaller Neptune or less sized planets. Again, that's something that well, I could Neptune mass and Jupiter radius, something like that, right? Neptune mass, Jupiter radius, potentially. Um, but the, the whole point of being that these presented a difficulty in terms of thinking about how... Um, how planets work, you know, a theoretical challenge to understanding of atmospheric erosion, given they're so low density and yet they're so close, they shouldn't really have any of the stuff. Um, you know, we see it, we see a flat spectra for these these planets, so that's which implies that there's something there that's not, that's true. not true. Sometimes we see a flat spectra. Would that I be can, fair? Mm, well, Happy Eleven was the first paper. Uh, Happy One was the first paper I ever wrote, and there's a massive, beautiful water absorption feature. Was seventeen also is. The clearest atmosphere in the uh, Sing 2016 study that I had in my thesis. Um, and what was the other one she named? I can go through them uh, for you. Uh, Kepler 7B? 
Kepler 7 has got an interesting spectrum. Uh, Kepler 7 was the one where we expect it to have very large inhomogeneities from one side of the planet to the other, um, which suggests that there is very obscuring clouds on one, one limb of the planet with, with clear features on the other. So that, that another one's very interesting spectrum. So no, I would, I would very strongly go against flat spectra for all of these. But that is what we were expecting, right? You're we expecting not to find anything there. So if you were to find a flat spectra, then that would be surprising. Why would we be expecting not to find something there? They're super puffy, so that means that the scale height of their atmosphere is incredibly extended. So the, 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 larger, the, the larger the scale height, the more photons you get through the atmosphere before it reaches us. And that means that you get far more opportunity to be able to measure these different absorption features that we would expect to be seeing there. So we're actually expected to, to see these really nice big absorption features just due to the, the pure extent of the atmosphere that we're getting these photons through before they're reaching our telescopes. Okay. Well, what about the more recent case of Kepler-51b, which uh, I think earlier this year was discovered that there's this outflowing dust that is, is swamping the transmission signal, resulting in a super flat spectrum for that planet anyway. Um, and one of the explanations one. was supposed to be dust. But again, this is not my, my area. So the super puffs are fantastically interesting. I think we can agree on that. Uh, and that there's lots going on in their atmosphere. And any more questions, uh, direct them to Dr. Wakefield, because she's the pro on this. I like but the look, super puffs. Super the puffs are fun. We're nearly at the end of Andrew's compendium of in-between planets now. And we're going to wrap it up with the super Jupiters, uh, which, as you might have guessed, are gas giants that are much more massive than than, than Jupiter, up to uh, the brown dwarf limits of like 13, 14 Jupiter masses. So there are a large number of these planets. They're actually, you know, fairly well known. Uh, some of the popular candidates being HR8799b and Beta Pick B, both in the ExoCup and doing pretty well this year. Uh, and there were interesting, there's an interesting debate in this in this regime. Again, I'm sure Hannah's a bit more familiar with than I am, but I'm going to use the example of the Kappa Andromedae system here, in which there were two planets discovered there. Um, but there's a little bit of uncertainty about the star's age. So one of those has now been rightly reclassified as a brown dwarf, but the debate, debate continues. And I think... You know, that's that's the whole point of these of these boundaries is to find where, you know, an interesting change happens. So we can we can now determine that objects that orbit stars in the galaxy range from, you know, dust all the way up to enormous balls of gas and plasma dozens, dozens of times larger than Jupiter. Um, so, you know, as I told a bewildered class a, a few weeks ago, science is a big exercise in classifying things. So exoplanets are very good and we love classifying out the planets that we find, but is it actually useful to do that? Especially when we have, we have to think about stuff in size space, we have to think about it in composition space, and we have to think about it in installation space, how much energy it's receiving. So is it really useful to have these labels, these supers and the subs and the spoonerisms? Um, I don't know, a hypothetical I'm throwing out there. Arguably the classifications allow us to group similar stuff together to maybe tease out those underlying relationships and allow us to see that maybe the really interesting work is done at the boundaries of the in-betweens where the uh, where's the upper mass limit for example when does a planet become a star you know those are the interesting transitions um, and I think that's where we can make the big strides in our, our, our understanding. And for me, uh, I can think of an example where we can see the trends emerging in the, in the kind of gap or the dearth of observed short period planets between like 1.6 and 2-ish Earth radii. So there's some systematic, some physically based mechanism that 
involves planet size, orbital distance, atmospheric erosion that results in this gap. And that's a very useful thing to be able to tease out from that, that big data. And I think, you know, called quite romantically by Kevin Zarley and David Catling as the, the cosmic shoreline when we start running up against wherever this, this boundary is. So that's, I would argue, an, a, useful, a useful use of our classification. We have a, a group of objects that behave similarly for some physical reason. But then again, I wouldn't necessarily expect to see much of a difference between a sub-Earth that's like 90% the mass of the Earth and a sub-Earth that's 85% the mass of the Earth, right? There's not going to be a functional difference. Or even maybe a, a hot Jupiter at 3,000 Kelvin, a hot Jupiter at like 2,500 Kelvin. You know, there we're running into maybe things that are a bit less useful. And of course, I haven't mentioned it, I've been trying to avoid it, but then we also have spoonerisms, of course, like the hop tunes and the tranets, no. which cause which cause terrible <laughs> ruckuses at, at conferences. We don't say those words here, no. Andrew. I tried um, my best, but I thought <laughs> I had to acknowledge it at least. <laughs> so I look forward to, I think there's going to be a whole new pro- a bunch of classes probably in the test and JWST era as we uncover new and stranger planets. Um, and I look forward to maybe the retirement of a few of these. But what about you, Hugh and Hannah? Do you think these are still useful for us? I think the important thing here is, yes, they are very, very useful for classifying planets, but we have to, we have to get over like solidifying that. Things change as we learn more. A yeah. thing can move from one category to another, and that is okay. A planet can become a dwarf planet. A super-Earth can become a mini-Neptune. A mini-Neptune can become an ev- evaporated core. Things can change as we learn more, and I think that's the problem that we stick things into. We stick these, these things into the categories, and, and if that changes, people start to worry and start to think, oh, do we not know? Do we not understand what this category means no we're, we're starting to understand more about that one particular object moving between those categories and i think that's more important to understand is that change is good change is okay change means that we're learning more and we're, we're adapting to that to try and get a better bigger picture because these allow us to put things into a big picture that's what we want to understand so change is good scary but good i kind of i disagree what i think Good. Change, uh, change exoplanets that are detected. Exoplanets are detected. Okay, for me, the um, the nomenclature of exoplanets is is exclusively mass radius, right, or, or maybe uh, distance from star, right. Those are the only three things really that, that vary. Completely changes the relationship between those properties. Um, not for my understanding of it. Uh, in terms of okay. I, I think there's probably only two boundaries we can draw in those di- in the, that diagram of mass radius. We can draw a boundary between rocky planets at less than 1.8 Earth radius, and we can draw a boundary probably between hot Jupiters and cold Jupiters because there's this dearth of Jupiters, you know, at 10 days, at 20 days. So hot Jupiters is a class. Earths and super Earths again are a class, and then maybe colder Jupiters down to Earths are a class, right? But those, uh, those, there is such a there's there's a big gradient within that class, right? There's no there's no other physical um, ways you you can chop up that distribution where it makes any sense because they're just continuous distributions within that class. That calling something a puff puffball versus a inflated Neptune versus a hot Jupiter makes no sense to me. Um, and I don't think, and if you, if you have the mass and the radius and the you know distance from the star, which you don't generally do unless unless there's a problem with your detection, you have those those quantities narrowed down. You know where on that you know mass versus radius plot it is, and you and it's not going to jump one of those boundaries. 
do you think this is a thing for us, right, as scientists, to communicate quickly with each other? And that, you know, if we are communicating with, um, you know, someone who's maybe less scientifically informed about this stuff, is it extra confusing or less confusing to be using these jargonistic labels? I think it's, 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 a, it's great for scientists to be able to quickly communicate these things. You drop the word hop tune and immediately people know what you're talking about and never to speak to you ever again because you've said the word hop tune. <laughs> But I don't know. I, I just see it as you know another piece of jargon. But uh, an interesting debate. I think it, I think in, in a number of cases it is just a lot of jargon. But in the case that that Hugh just exemplified for us, prior to us seeing that mass radius relation, pri- sorry, prior to us seeing that radius gap, that radius gap that was shown just in the last two years. Prior to that, all these people that were discovering these planets were calling them super Earths, and now we know that's not true. So things have changed because we've learned more. So I oh, yeah, think totally. that you are you are kind of going against something and being contradictory in doing so because as we learn more yeah. about these things we learn that actually no are saying just because it's half the size of Neptune two times the radius of the earth or 2.5 or 2.8 and sometimes 3 times the radius of the earth in some of these cases they were called super earths and we now know based on this relation radius gap that has been observed, that that's not true. So I think we are changing things and we do have to change things as we learn more. And I think that you you put that forward quite nicely there for me, Hugh, so thank you. I, I think my, my problem is mainly with calling things sub-Earths that are 0.8 and calling things Earths that are 1 and calling things super-Earths that are 1.2, like times the mass of Earth or whatever. In that case, you're just making too many categories given that there is a continuous distribution of planets within that. And the same is true for hot Jupiters, and the same is true for super Jupiters versus, you know, mega Saturns or whatever you you you. We. I think I think I agree with both of you, frankly, and I think that's kind of what I said to you. Like <laughs> functionally within some of the categories, we could get rid of some of those subcategories, it, it definitely. But there's a transition, there's a pattern that is useful to extract yeah. from that. There are some functional boundaries. I think if you look at the ExoCup cards, you can <laughs> you can see some places where I made up some stuff because it was very boring to write mini Neptune, mini Neptune, mini yeah. Neptune, mini Neptune, mini yes. Neptune, mini Neptune. Like, exactly. Just trying to throw some entertainment in there in some of those cases, you know, I put a heavy Neptune on something because yeah. the density is much higher, but it's a much larger planet kind of thing. So it's, I agree, there's lots of jargon in there and that it's not particularly helpful, but it does, um, it certainly helps, especially in science communication, for somebody to visualize something so bizarre. If you add more descriptive words to something, you can start to kind of piece together an idea of what that that world might be like. And I, I find that it's you get a very visceral reaction to these these words that you kind of pile onto each other, and they might not have scientific meaning. Then I think it's the opposite way around. These these jargon words, these descriptive words that we're using, they pile onto this visualization that people can have, so that they can potentially perhaps understand a little bit more about what it is okay. we're talking about. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, well, before we run into a full podcast worth of discussion about I this... I mean, yeah, we're gonna, um, this is going to be a two-hour podcast. Exactly. You're getting, getting your uh, your money's worth with this this uh, month's ExoCast. But let's, uh, let's draw a line under that. And uh, I think it's time to throw it over to the news desk for this month's happenings in exoplanet science. So let's throw it over to Dr. Wakefit. Yeah, this month we've had a slew of exoplanet discoveries and atmospheric investigations, so I think I'll kick off with some of these new worlds that we've left to explore. Uh, once again, Tess and Harps have formed an exoplanet hunting dream team, 
with the discovery of a short period Neptune orbiting a G-type dwarf star with the designation, wait for it, TYC 8003-1117-1, or as the test team have designated it, TOI-132, which is a lot easier, and that was all presented in Diaz et al. Now, the planet orbits a star on 2.11 days, and it has a radius of 3.43 Earth radii. So this is this places it in the Neptune mini-Neptune category. And it's actually in what is the so-called Neptune Desert, where it's kind of been shown that it's difficult to find a planet as they are thought to be stripped of their atmosphere by their host star. So they're highly irradiated. These Neptune-sized worlds are likely to lose their atmosphere and therefore drop down to a smaller size and out of this Neptune Desert area where we don't find a certain size of planet so close to a certain type of star. So this one uh, is is a new one full of, you know, in a handful of planets that have been discovered in this Neptune desert. And from previous observations of these types of worlds, there's been a lot of atmospheric activity and escape that has been seen. So I, I think that this one is going to be really interesting for follow-up atmospheric investigations to see if it's acting the same as these other Neptune desert type worlds where we expect them to be losing their atmosphere and potentially moving out of this desert uh, of this dearth of planets. So. so that's another interesting one for follow-up. We also have a super-Earth, a 1.5 Earth radii, and a mini-Neptune 2.2 Earth radii discovered around Kepler-59b, and this is in Saïd Oliveira et al. Now, the masses of these worlds were actually determined using their transit time and variations which is caused by their mutual gravitational pull on each other and how that changes when we see them pass in front of their star. Now, interestingly, or I found interesting, the range of masses for the smaller super-Earth are higher than the range of masses for the mini-Neptune. Now, the small super-Earth has a range of mass between three and five Earth masses, while the mini-Neptune has a range between 2.6 and 4.6 Earth masses. Now, there's not a huge difference between those two different worlds. And admittedly, there's not a huge difference between their radii, either at 1.5 and 2.2 Earth radii. But I think this kind of falls into that discussion that we just had with Andrew. It's just, how do we define these things? How, where is that boundary? And is it, is it the same for everything? Or, as I expect, we're going to be seeing a huge amount of variation, a huge amount of scatter, essentially, in all of those classifications of where a planet's mass and radius lies. And as we've already seen with exoplanets, as you go down to these smaller masses where we're not really sure what happens to the atmosphere of a planet, the scatter does get much, much larger between the radius and the mass. So it's not linear at that point. And that's really interesting. And I think these two planets around Kepler-59 that have just been discovered really kind of sit in that category of uncertainty. Um, unfortunately, the star's a little bit too dim for decent follow-up, but the test mission might be able to get some more information about them uh, if it continues doing its extended mission. So I fully expect many, many more planets to keep coming out of Kepler and keep coming out of tests in the coming months. But I want to talk about some atmospheric characterization studies that have been in on the archive recently. First, we have two new papers from the Hubble Panchromatic Treasury Program. I mentioned uh, one of these earlier, or rather our guest mentioned one of these earlier. Um, but uh, I'll go into another one first. The first uh, one that I found was from Sotson et al. And they're looking at the hot Jupiter Wasp 79b, 
Now, this is important because that is the main target for the JWST Early Release Science Program from the Exoplanet Transiting Community. And that program is really going to use this world to try and understand multiple instruments on James Webb from all of the near-infrared instruments and analyze the spectrum from that so we can understand how to use James Webb better. So the new results actually show that while 79B is still an ideal target for this program, which is great, it has a muted but present water feature, water absorption feature in the atmosphere, meaning that it will likely be able to resolve multiple water absorption features and potentially other molecular gas features with James Webb at that higher resolution and higher precision that we can get. So that is a great start. This this campaign from Hubble has shown us that this is a good target to use. However, there's some interesting stuff from some ground-based um, observations in there that show a little bit wacky in the optical. And there are actually some future observations coming from the Panset team that hopefully we'll be able to resolve what is going on there and we can start to understand a little bit more about what this planet is like in those wavelengths that James Webb will not be able to observe in. So that's a nice starting point for WASP-79b. Next we have the, the one that we mentioned earlier, an investigation by Yayani Chachan et al. And that was into the Neptune HAP-P-11b that we talked about a lot. Now, what they showed was that based on previous Hubble observations in the infrared, there was a very high metallicity reported. So from 10 to 700 times solar metallicity for this planetary atmosphere. Now, these new observations from the PANSET program in the optical and a new analysis on all of the Spitzer and infrared data have shown that the metallicity is actually much likely lower than that at four to 86 times solar. So much, much lower, nowhere near the 700 times solar that was expected before. And this new measurement rules out a huge sway of the parameter space that you would expect. And what they did was they used a microphysical cloud model to try and understand what's happening in the optical. So we get these very flat features and then you still see these molecular absorption features. So the spectrum requires a high altitude cloud to be able to model what we're measuring. And the emergence of those molecular features in the infrared again indicates that the increased wavelength coverage is really, really critical in determining any atmospheric and planetary properties for any exoplanet. So that small investigation previously, it didn't have the wavelength coverage needed to fully understand these atmospheres and to classify what this planet is and what it's made of. So that's a really nice two studies that have come out recently from the PANSET team. Moving away from Hubble, we have two papers this month using Carmen as spectrograph to look at the ultra-hot Jupiters. So two separate teams, Jan et al. and Turner et al. have confirmed the presence of ionized calcium-2 in the atmosphere of KELT-9b, adding to a huge slew of other atoms and ions discovered earlier this year. One of the teams also looked at the atmosphere of WASP-33b uh, and also found it to have strong ionized calcium-2 signatures. They concluded in that study that due to the lack of calcium-1, ionized calcium-1 found in the atmosphere of these, these ultra-hot Jupiters, including Mascara-2, which had a calcium-2 detection earlier this year, calcium is most likely ionized into the calcium-2 state in the upper atmosphere at a high rate so it's being easily made into this calcium too so this might be a really good and useful way to start probing these ultra hot jupiter atmospheres by looking for this signature of ionized calcium 
Now, we had a array of theory papers out this month, and I definitely don't have time to go into all of them. Uh, I'll give a quick summary later. But one of them was written by our very own Andrew Rushby, who is looking at the effects of the host star spectra on the albedo of terrestrial worlds. So, Andrew, could you give us a couple of sentence summary of what, what you found there? Sure. Well, thanks for including it in the news desk, Hannah. It means a lot. Um, yeah, this is a, a fun paper that I uh, that uh, was accepted this month to AppJ, in which we used a pretty simple 1D energy balance model with an ice growth model to investigate how the ice albedo uh, feedback works on planets around different types of stars. So for those who aren't familiar with that process, basically, uh, let's think about the Earth or a, a planet around a, a sun-like star. You know, when we have ice on our planet, it's quite reflective. It has a high albedo. That albedo, that reflectivity reflects away some of the energy, which cools the planet and then, you know, maybe results in more ice growth, which then cools the planet a little bit more. It's quite reflective. So that reflects away more energy, results in more ice, ice growth and, and, and so on and so forth. And there's, in theory, a, a runaway at some point in latitude space where maybe you get to like 30 degrees latitude and there's just so much bright surface on the planet it just reflects all that energy away and you get you get a snowball now that's the theory anyway and we've seen that a couple of times geochemically some evidence for it on the earth but what we want to do in this paper is investigate how that might work on planets that orbit much smaller much redder much cooler stars uh, that give off a lot of their energy in the in the longer wavelengths and actually the ice is quite absorptive in those wavelengths it actually looks darker than the land surface vector that we were using so we found actually a reversal of the ice albedo feedback on on those planets particularly those planets that have very very high land fraction so a la high land to ocean ratio uh, because the land is actually much more reflective than the ice on those on those planets. Uh, there's an idealized land surface, of course, but it's still much more reflective than what we might expect water ice to look like. That actually means that if you have ice growing, it stabilizes the climate, bizarrely. You have this ice growing, it actually absorbs a little bit of energy, actually warms the planet up slightly, it melts, uh, which then cools the planet by revealing more reflective land surface, which results in more ice growing. And so you actually have a nice little negative feedback, and it was a really fun paper that we uh, that we yeah we enjoyed writing but we think there's a little bit more to investigate with uh with a model that's maybe a little bit more complicated nice. interesting result to start with nonetheless yeah and on a similar vein in the opposite effect there was a paper by peacock et al which presented the synthetic euv the extreme ultraviolet stellar spectra for these types of stars these much these very cool red stars they also have a huge output of energy in the extreme ultraviolet and they produced sim like the synthetic spectra in these wavelength ranges because we don't have observations in these wavelength ranges of these types of stars. It's incredibly difficult measurement to make. So all of the spectra we have are synthetic. And this team makes some very advanced synthetic models in the extreme ultraviolet for these types of stars. And the reason why these are important is you need to understand the role of ionizing radiation on these planets' atmospheres very specifically. So the ionizing radiation will ionize the hydrogen in the planetary atmosphere, as well as heat rates will change. So the heating rates caused by the extreme ultraviolet in the atmosphere will change, and the cause of escape of the atmosphere. So can that planet actually hold on to the atmosphere if it's orbiting one of these cool red stars as well? So it's really nice to see those two papers coming out very, very similar time because they really complement each other in trying to understand and investigate these very small planets around these, these small red stars and how that star will affect what we might be measuring, what we might be seeing. So I thought that those two worked really nicely together. Um, and just to go really quickly through uh, a list of some other theory papers that I found interesting, there's a whole host of, of them. Um, but 
I would recommend you check out Paul et al.'s work on inhomogeneities and exoplanet transmission spectra, which is due to clouds. Um, Brand et al. looked at the feasibility of detecting directly imaged cold Jupiters with James Webb. Craigland et al. connected the planet formation and astrochemistry to a main sequence C to O ratio in hot exoplanet atmospheres and how that might change with evolution of these planets. Sousa Silva et al. presented uh, phosphine as a biosignature gas in exoplanet atmospheres, and that's based on the ExoMol database that uh, they worked on as well, and they produced that database. And Stevenson and Fowler detail eight years of Hubble's wide-field camera-free use for exoplanet studies and how we've been using the telescope and what that has meant for the observations that have occurred. So there's a huge number of really good papers out there that I think people should go out and read. But, of course, the biggest news this month, come on, people, it's the ExoCup. We're in full swing right now. Uh, everyone go out, get out the vote, uh, share all the fun exoplanet facts that you have. That's all we ever want is just more more exoplanet facts. And some of the votes have been ni- nail-bitingly close this time round as well. Three-way ties, four-way ties sometimes. It's been, it's been very passionate. It has. It's been very exciting and we've been getting great number of votes for each of the rounds so far and if we can keep that up I will be very very happy. So now it's time to adopt a planet. So Dr. Brett Morris, which planet have you chosen for us this month? The planet that I've chosen is going to be a first on your list. The oh, planet no. that I've chosen no longer exists but it did for a time. <laughs> this planet is WD1145 plus 017, which is a really great name for a, a system. Um, <laughs> it is the name of a white dwarf. That's what the WD stands for. And this white dwarf had material that passed between the star and the Earth for a period of time, uh, but may no longer be there. Uh, this was observed by Kepler, by Andrew Vanderberg and collaborators in 2015, who found that there were these periodic brightness variations of the white dwarf that can most easily be attributed to a minor planet, something maybe asteroid or or large dwarf planet sized, that was passing in front of its star as it was getting ripped apart by tidal forces due to the proximity to the star. And so we knew about this rock, which most likely was a rock, for a brief window of time while it was observed by the Kepler spacecraft before being torn apart by its host star. And so I would like to admit the first white dwarf planet into your ranks with WD 114517. That's a fantastic choice, Brett. And that's actually in my segment about this month's unusually sized planets, because it was one of the the first examples of what might be called a sub-Earth, or as you said, arguably it's a dwarf exoplanet if you want to go by IAU standards, because it's smaller than Ceres. So an incredible choice and uh, very pertinent for this week, or this month, I should say. And uh, if I'm if I'm not uh, incorrect, it was actually the, I think it's still the first planet-sized, or the, fir- the only planet-sized object detected around a white dwarf. Am I right about that? Or has there been something else? There has been something else. Oh. Um, there was one published about a month ago. Oh, it was probably which, on the news. <laughs> probably should yeah, go back and which <laughs> was particularly interesting. It was discovered in assassin observations, which are these really long-term photometric monitoring campaigns, and they detected a dip 
of several tens of percent on a white dwarf with a period of something like a hundred days, which means it's pretty distant material. But from what they can tell, it looks like it's material that's being destroyed by tidal forces. If it has a period of a hundred days, but it's being destroyed by tidal forces, it's probably on a very eccentric orbit that brings it right next to the host star. And so this system is incredibly extreme. And if there had been a third planet, uh, sorry, a third transit, then I probably would have selected that one as my choice. But so far, there have only been two detected dips. And so we need a third to establish periodicity in my version of peer review. (laughs) Once that happens, it should be admitted. (laughs) There's there's actually a third as well, because um, there's ones discovered spectroscopically. Um, These like spectroscopic variations in the in the gas emission of a of a disc around a white dwarf. That's right. By Chris Munzer. Yeah. But one one four five plus seventeen was the was the first planetary was the science first, objects. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Good choice. White dwarfs have always yeah, done well in the Exo Cup. People seem to really rally behind the weird weird and wacky, so very happy to have it <laughs> in our family. Perfect. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Brett. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So thank you for joining us on another excellent installment of Exocast. We had a great guest talking about a huge number of different topics. Um, we will return next month with more exciting exoplanetary news and views and the end result of the Exocup for the next podcast. So stay tuned for that. Until then, you can check out all of our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, on Spotify or on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast and like us on Facebook. So until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. I don't know. I don't know how I knew about it then. <laughs> Hugh, we never know how you know about these things. N- Nostradam Hugh. Nor can we ever keep up with what's in the news. <laughs> it's terrible, I'm sorry.